0: I published a book in 2018 predicting that the eventual replacement for the U.S. dollar would be a digital currency. And I don't think it's cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. I think it's the cat's out of the bag that digital currency is going to be the way of the future. The question is going to be what country or block of countries come up with the digital reserve currency that really provides a viable alternative to the U.S. dollar. How does that event come about, and it's not something that happens next week or next month. In the next decade, I think that we'll eventually see the emergence of a digital currency that really gives the U.S. dollar a run for its money for the title of global reserve currency. That's going to be what changes the Fed's ability to get away with what it's been doing.
1: For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been a chance to refine my own investment framework through a series of conversations with extraordinary investors in every corner of the world. In this series, I, along with my co-host Robert Carver and Moritz Siebert, want to continue our education by digging deeper into the minds of some of the thought leaders when it comes to how the world economy and global markets really work, to try and learn how they think. We want to understand the experiences that have shaped them the processes they follow, and the historical events that have influenced them. We also want to ask questions outside our normal rules-based playground. We're not looking for trade ideas or random guesses about an unknown future, but rather knowledge accumulated over the course of decades in the markets to try and make us better informed investors. And we want to share those conversations with you. Our guest today is a global macro investor who, like us, talks to some of the sharpest minds in the financial world on his own podcast, Macro Voices. So he really is able to provide a unique combination of market opinions and deep insights. So I'm convinced you will enjoy our conversation today with Eric Townsend of Macro Voices. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today for a conversation as part of our mini series into the world of global macro, where we relax our usual systematic or rules based framework to provide you, the listener, with a broader context as to where we are in the global and historical framework and perhaps discover some of the trends that may occur in the global markets in the next few months or even the next few years, and ultimately how this will impact all of us as investors and how we should best prepare our portfolios. So we're super excited to dive into many different topics in the next hour or so, not least because you are an investor yourself, Eric, but also because you speak to many of the brightest minds on your own amazing podcast, Macro Voices. So let's kick off with a kind of a 30,000 feet question that, if I may just kick everything off here. Where do you think we are in the big global macro picture? Because to me, it feels like kind of a blend of something we've seen before in the past, 1929, the Japanese bubble in the late 80s, the tech bubble, the great financial crisis, as well as a brand new set of uh, challenges we haven't seen before. And of course, to that, we add a global pandemic, which makes it a very unique period indeed. How do you see the world right now, Eric?
0: Well, I think the very big picture perspective that you have to keep is. We are 10 years into the grandest monetary policy experiment in the history of the earth. We had this this big credit boom from really the 1980s through the early 2000s. We had the 2008 financial crisis, and the response to that has been a very accommodative central bank policy, which is completely unprecedented to some extent the the policy moves were precedented in the sense that japan had done them quantitative easing had been used in japan and by the way it led to decades of stagflation what were known as the the lost decade now it's a, at least a couple of lost decades for japan we've tried to use the same tactics of expanding central bank balance sheets to pump more liquidity into the system to rescue the financial system and that has clearly it caused a lot of people to fear runaway inflation when those policies were first introduced. And I think what almost everybody got wrong, but they kind of got right at the same time, was they were right to fear inflation, but it was not consumer price inflation. It was asset price inflation because most of that – Money that was conjured out of thin air by central banks didn't go to Main Street to provide more money in the pocket of the average consumer. It went to put more money in the pocket of the average investment banker to buy more assets. And it's led to the biggest, what I would consider to be an artificial bull market, but still a very real bull market just the same in asset prices for the last 10 years. A lot of people said, okay. That's pretty amazing that it went for 10 years, but it's artificial and therefore unsustainable, and it all has to add, end badly someday. Now, there's a, a growing number of people that are taking the opposite side of that argument, saying, no. What it actually is is it's the realization of a better way, and that's what leads us to modern monetary theory and a lot of people who want to embrace it and say what we need to do is more quantitative easing, more central bank policy accommodation. Perhaps the people who are proponents of MMT would like to focus it more on helping Main Street than helping Wall Street, but they think we need to do more of that, and there's some of us old-school types that have been saying for years that it's unsustainable it has to end badly. Somebody's about to be proven right or wrong. And when I say about to be, I mean in the next few years. It's taken 10 years of this policy just to get us to this point. So how does this monetary policy experiment end? And if the answer really is that you can just expand central bank uh, balance sheets forever and there's no adverse consequence, well, then I guess prosperity is upon us. We can forget about taxes and just print all the money that we need, and everybody can have three Learjets and a Rolls Royce. I don't think it's going to go that way. I think we're about to learn that there are adverse consequences to everything that's happened. And I think that in many ways we're seeing it now. The coronavirus crisis has brought us this pandemic lockdown but really i think the reaction to the lockdown what's being perceived and all the civil unrest as a as a reaction to both police violence is being perceived as a reaction to the coronavirus lockdown i don't think it's any of those things i think it's a reaction to this monetary policy intervention of the last 10 years where basically what governments have done has been to provide a huge amount of policy accommodation that helps rich people it doesn't help the average guy on main street it helps financial markets. It it has dramatically fueled the biggest bull market in stocks in all of history, but it hasn't done a whole lot to help the average guy on Main Street. Uh, I think the folks with pitchforks are starting to sharpen them up and say, we've had enough. And that's happening all around the world. So we're headed toward potentially an intervention of a different kind, a public intervention where people who are literally rioting in the streets potentially at some point are going to say, enough bailing out Wall Street, let's bail out Main Street. And I think that that probably leads to more quantitative easing or a different form of quantitative easing that's aimed much more at supplying money to Main Street consumers. Now, the fears of widespread inflation, i think, like to start to come back into the fray, because for years and years, we thought there was going to be inflation from money printing. It didn't happen in the sense of widespread consumer price inflation. It did happen in the sense of asset price inflation. I think we're about to get the widespread consumer price inflation, but that doesn't come until we refocus the printing press, uh, the proverbial printing press, on providing accommodation that helps Main Street instead of Wall Street. So I think probably the next thing to happen is MMT and and monetary policy and fiscal policy accommodation directed at Main Street rather than Wall Street, and then that leads to an inflationary event like nothing we've ever seen before. But that's going several years into the future at that point.
1: There's a lot to unpack, but just before Rob and and Moritz jump in with some of their observations and questions, you mentioned Japan. You mentioned that that was one of the things that we had kind of seen before. We learned later on, at least I learned later on, recently actually from Richard Werner and the Princess of the Yen documentary based on his book. As far as I recall, he felt that a lot of the bubble was actually created by intent from the BOJ to, in order to gain more independence at the end of of all of that debacle. Do you think that there is more things going on here? I mean, could the Fed actually be seeking more independence? We certainly know they're under a lot of pressure from the White House at the moment, but could they be seeking deep down more independence by help creating a a situation like we saw in Japan in in the late 80s?
0: I think we've reached the early panic stages and i don't think we're in full panic yet but i think that we've gotten to the point where the fed correctly realizes that they can't stop they can't cut off the the monetary policy accommodation you know the 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 analogy i I think of is if you're the the drug dealer that's supplying the heroin addicts and they're armed and they outnumber you you don't cut them off and, and and make them upset because they'll come and kill you, so I think the Fed has to continue doing what it's been doing, and I think that very soon political pressure will force the Fed to do more that is aimed toward Main Street instead of Wall Street. So, MMT is is definitely in our future. Uh, how long can they continue to get away with this? Maybe is the operative question, and I think the answer in, in, in to that hinges entirely on how long the U.S. dollar lasts as the world's global reserve currency. And the way I look at this is the dollar is, at this point, global reserve currency for one reason and one reason only, which is there simply is no viable alternative today to the dollar. There's a lot of people around the world that are sick of the hegemony that the United States exerts over the rest of the world. They're sick of the dominance of the dollar and the impact that it has, uh, the adverse impact that it has against other economic systems around the world. But there's nothing they can do about it because there is no viable alternative. What are you going to replace the dollar with? The Euro? Well, the Eurozone has got plenty of problems of its own. The yen has already been debased even more than than the dollar has. The Chinese yuan, I mean, look at the, the challenges that China has. I published a book in 2018 predicting that the eventual replacement for the U.S. dollar would be a digital currency. And I don't think it's cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. I think it's the cat's out of the bag that digital currency is going to be the way of the future. The question is going to be what country or block of countries come up with the digital reserve currency that really provides a viable alternative to the US dollar. How does that event come about? And it's not something that happens next week or next month. In the next decade, I think that we'll eventually see the emergence of a digital currency that really gives the US dollar a run for its money for the title of global reserve currency. That's going to be what changes the Fed's ability to get away with what it's been doing.
1: Yeah. Rob, what's on your mind?
2: yeah i'm kind of agreeing with you um I do wonder though whether it's the central banks that need to have the sort of paradigm shift because ultimately central banks are responsible for monetary policy and clearly monetary policy hasn't hasn't worked as you say conventional monetary monetary policy hasn't worked Q e hasn't worked and ultimately that's because the the you know the so called transmission channel from buying assets to people's pockets books isn't as efficient as uh, as they'd hoped it would be so I kind of think that I think we're seeing this more now. But you look at the the last ten years, especially in this country in Europe, you had central bankers buying bonds on the one side, and on the other side, you had austerity and a fiscal response that was basically pushing the other way. And these, obviously, in the U.S., things were a bit more nuanced, and there was a reasonably good fiscal response. But isn't it isn't the politicians that have to kind of say, you know, what the Corona crisis? They're doing that now. They are. There is a big fiscal response to the Corona crisis, but there is a real Certainly, I've noticed here a real temptation to want to pull back from that as soon as possible and, and, you know, and go back to running a, a balanced budget or something close to it. But isn't the paradigm really that you know, the politicians spend the money, the fiscal policy, and the central bank's job purely then is to, if necessary, buy the bonds if there isn't the open market demand for doing that? I just think we're kind of assuming that central banks can do way too much and they, they really didn't, they've not been doing such a great job. So isn't it really down to the government as well?
0: Well, I see it a little bit differently. First of all, you said QE isn't working. It's working very, very well for a lot of people on Wall Street. A whole lot of people, or I should say a very small number of people, have benefited immensely at the expense of everyone else thanks to these policy decisions that have been implemented. I think what's happening is the world is slowly figuring out just how badly they're getting screwed over by this whole system. And what's happening now, and I think the big shift for governments is – Lawmakers used to have the idea in their head that, you know, we, we love spending money, but the only way to spend money is you got to tax somebody for it. And so that means we got to figure out how to make somebody the bad guy. Let's pick rich guys, make them the bad guys. Unfortunately, there's not enough of those rich guys, and they're pretty good about hiding their money. So it's hard to get the taxes we need. Boy, what are we going to do? Well, what they have figured out. And I think it's a fallacy in some ways. What they think they've figured out is, wait a minute, central banks don't need to tax anybody. They can print money out of thin air and supply us with all the money we need to spend on whatever we want to spend it on. And it's really not going to blow up the system the way all those pesky economists told us it would, because look at what they've been doing for the last 10 years. They've created trillions of dollars out of thin air, and those trillions of dollars went into bank reserves, but that's a distinction the average politician doesn't understand. There were trillions of dollars that that didn't exist, that were printed or or that were conjured out of thin air. We need to start getting these central bankers working for us and, and let's conjure some more trillions of dollars out of thin air without taxing anyone and spend it on what we want to spend it on. And that's mostly buying votes by offering policies which may or may not make sense for society but sound good to the people that are voting for them. So I think that what the next big trend is going to be is politicians recognizing the opportunity to demand that central banks provide money creation, essentially to monetize deficit spending without having to tax anyone now the, in the United States at least a lot of people would say don't no, no they can't do that because the way the Federal Reserve Act worked it, nonsense the government makes up its own rules the government breaks its own laws routinely if there is a majority of lawmakers a, a controlling interest of a political party that wants to do MMT, the Federal Reserve Act is not going to get in the way. They'll either find a way to work around it, as they did recently buying junk bonds, which was clearly against the spirit and intended meaning of the Federal Reserve Act. They'll either reinterpret it creatively or they'll change it. So I think we're headed toward an era of several years where politicians focus on let's spend lots and lots of money without taxing anybody to do it. And maybe we'll tax some rich guys just for the sport of it in order to make the, the poor guys feel better. But we're not going to look at tax revenues as the source of funding all the money we want to spend. We're going to look at the central bank's ability to expand its balance sheet as the source of that money. That will go on. And it will appear to be fantastically successful at first because inflation is always a a, a lag function. It never happens overnight. Eventually, that's going to cause a runaway inflation problem and probably an inflationary greater depression someday. But it's not going to happen overnight. And initially, those policies will be incredibly popular. They won't blow up the system overnight. Everything will appear to be working just fine. And the politicians that are pushing for those policies and that were responsible for bringing them into light are going to be on the most epic victory lap of all time. When they're saying, we went for 10 years with these stinking central banks working for Wall Street, and thanks to me being in office, now they're working for... Main Street. They're working for you and me. They're working for the people because I'm the one who got rid of those Wall Street fat cats and got the central banks working for us. Eventually, they're going to create runaway inflation that blows up the whole economy, but it's not going to happen overnight.
3: When I read the summaries, the, the really great summaries of Ray Dalio about the big debt crisis, right? So my observation is that essentially every currency that has existed has devalued, including the US dollar. People don't realize it because it happens so slowly while they live, right? But most of the currencies that used to be in existence no longer exist, and the ones that do exist have devalued massively. And it seems to be the case that no matter what, it always, the end game is inflation and complete devaluation of a currency and then a reset and a change of system. And this is also something that politicians getting closer to that end game Seem to be a driving force, and because it gets them elected, right? The the MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, aka Magic Money Tree, is exactly what gets you the votes right now. If you're saying, you know, we're doing tax cuts and we're, you know, helping Wall Street and all of that, and we're doing more quantitative easing and debt monetization, which causes asset price inflation, that just widens the wealth gap, in my opinion. So it probably doesn't get you a lot of votes. But doing the spending on different things, giving it away, helicopter type in a helicopter type of way. That is probably what gets elected. And I agree with you, Eric, it will probably be a couple of years, but eventually it'll create the velocity and it'll create the spending of Main Street so that we start competing for assets, daily livelihood assets, and then prices start rising. And then that is kind of like when the train has left the station, it becomes faster and faster and faster. And at the end, there's complete evaluation of the currency and you need to start over again. Probably this is when you can start with a digital currency, I'm just, you know, if, if I put myself in the shoes of a politician saying, hey, let's do this crypto digital kind of like central bank reserve currency right now, probably doesn't get you any votes, right? Because if the, if it's any type of hard cryptocurrency, you need to make it like Bitcoin, like, you know, there needs to be a, a cap in the amount of coins so they can't be inflated away and all of that. That is not what politicians want. Politicians want to be able to spend money and expand the budget and, you know, react flexibly to things. So probably they're not going to do it right now. They first need to crash the currency,
0: the U.S. dollar, whatever currencies it is that we have, and then do it. I agree, and I think we should also make an important distinction about MMT because I've been criticized legitimately before for equating what politicians will do with what some of the proponents of the actual theory of modern monetary theory have done. So let's distinguish MMT, modern monetary theory, The PhDs that came up with that stuff are very smart people. They're very acutely aware of inflation risk. They really do understand it. They know that it's a a major concern. Then there's the magic money tree version of MMT, which is the way the politicians see it. And they just look at all the work of those PhDs as, okay, it's a a body of complicated stuff that I don't understand, that the voters don't understand, that I can use to justify why I should just spend ridiculous amounts of money on helicopter programs, whether it be universal basic income, socialized medicine, all of the different things that you want to provide, essentially free services to everybody to get more votes with, that form of MMT... The magic money on trees is really not what the academics who came up with modern monetary theory intended, but that's the way it's going to be bastardized and used, and that's the concern that I have. So I, I just want to be fair to the, the people who invented modern monetary theory to, to to recognize that we're making a jump there, not from what they prescribed, but rather to what politicians will interpret from their prescriptions, which I think is going to be runaway spending that eventually leads to runaway inflation. Now, coming back to the digital currency side of this, I think it's a question of of motivation. In Western societies, as you say, there's really no motivation for Western politicians to want to say, you know, let's let's have France come up with the digital reserve currency to replace the dollar. Why would any French politician expect to get votes from doing that? It doesn't make any sense. The motive is for the... Eastern countries that are sick of the U.S. having hegemony over the entire global financial system, that the people that have seen that as an injustice for decades that have been trying to figure out what can we do about it. So we're primarily talking about China and Russia. If you're China and Russia, first of all, you don't care about votes because you, you rule through fear and intimidation, not through democracy. And what you care about is shifting power from the West back to the East and certainly in China their view of the world is China has been the economic center of the universe for the last 4,000 years, with the singular small exception of just the last few hundred years, which were an unfortunate anomaly that needs to be corrected. The way that I think they see, and that's the reason PBOC is working so hard on their digital currency efforts, they've got a long-term plan. They're saying, okay, what's going to happen here is Western economies are going to ruin themselves. They're going to go to the magic money tree version of MMT. Both Europe and the United States are going to conjure money out of thin air for helicopter money programs. They're eventually going to bankrupt their economies. They're eventually going to get to runaway inflation, destroying their economies. When that happens, We'll let them dig their own grave because we don't have the military wherewithal to put them in a grave as much as we might like to. We'll let them dig their own grave. But once they've dug their own grave and they're on the hairy edge of falling into it because they've created inflation, we're going to be ready with the new digital currency system which serves as the entire planet's global reserve system for the next hundred years. We're going to start working now to plan to be ready to seize that moment when it comes to us, when Western society screws itself over by putting itself into a very difficult economic situation as a result of these other trends that we're talking about. So that's what I think is going on already. And you see, for a while, Russia was fairly outspoken with Sergei Glaziev talking about de-dollarization, going to blockchain conferences, giving keynote addresses and so forth. That's all gone silent now. I don't think they lost interest. I think they decided to stop publicizing their intentions. And and I think that China and Russia are very interested in sovereign digital currency, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, but building and designing the system that they will be ready to use to seize opportunity several years into the future after Western civilization has kind of uh, put itself in a very vulnerable position as a result of runaway inflation.
1: There's a few things I want to come back to, Eric, but just to stay on that point, I mean, you were very early on the coronavirus and and the potential damage that that would do, uh, especially with Chris Martinson. I think it was from Peak Prosperity where you did a lot of great interviews. And as you just say, perhaps China is just waiting for the Western world to start introducing MMT um, and eventually the beginning of the end of, of, of the way our capital system works. And, and if that is the case, they've certainly helped along if we are to uh, at least acknowledge that the virus possibly started in China and but we got the worst of it. That certainly has accelerated our adaptation of MMT, you could say, with all these acts of care and, and other things that has been put in place around the Western world. I can't help wanting to ask you what you think now... It's been three or four months since you started, uh, or five months since you started talking about COVID-19. I mean, is this part of a bigger plan, frankly? Uh, I mean, we may not necessarily all get invaded by China, but are we heading for the Chinese model? Is that the model that someone around the world wants to impose on, on other parts of the world, if I can put it that way?
0: Well, first of all, I am not aware of any compelling evidence to say that the although I do think there's compelling evidence that the virus itself was lab-made, all the evidence I've seen suggests an accidental leak of a virus out of a research laboratory by mistake. I don't think that this was China intentionally unleashing a virus to damage the West or anything like that. I think that that would have been way too risky of a move. I don't think China... It would not be consistent with China's decision-making strategy and everything I've seen about the way they do things. So I don't think there's any truth to China released COVID-19 on the world intentionally. And by the way, let me
1: just stop you there, Eric, because I kind of agree. So I want to make it clear that some of the theories you hear about and and, and people talk about, it's not necessarily China as a country. It is the Chinese model. And it may be something that people, how should I put it, it's not really a... um, the people who may want to uh, to change the world or the new world order as ray dalio talks about you know may not be chinese per se they could be people sitting around the globe but it's the chinese model and where the digital currency actually would fit in very neatly because it helps and it makes it easier to control things
0: well yes and and i think that the trend that most people don't even think about because we tend to think only in in the scope of time frames around our own human lifetime. It seems to us like obviously the West are the leaders of the world, and China was this rinky dink little uh, third world country with guys with funny hats bent over in rice patties that somehow kind of came around to develop, a, a, probably because we were outsourcing our manufacturing to them, developed a real economy very quickly and surprised a lot of people. That's not the Chinese view. The Chinese view is China. First of all, China is, a, is an English word. The, the Chinese word for China, Zhongguo, translates literally to central Nation. The center of the universe is China. That's what it's all about. For 4,000 years, China has been the economic center of the world. The big dog in the game has always been China. And for the last just two or 300 years, something went wrong. And China fell off of its perch of leadership and domination globally of the global economy. And that needs to be fixed is the way they see it the racism and the superiority complex of the Chinese culture, is not at all. They don't think of themselves as little underdogs that are trying to keep up with the West. They see themselves as the superior culture that rightfully is supposed to run the world, and something went wrong for the last couple hundred years, and it needs to be fixed. So it's a very different perspective than we're used to. It's also a part of the world where governments control through force rather than through democracy. And what they're, at this point, Beholden to is we have a global economy where those currencies, the Chinese yuan and the Russian ruble are not particularly strong, and as much as they would like to compete with the U.S. dollar to replace the U.S. dollar with their currency being the global reserve instead of the U.S. dollar getting all of the benefits of being global reserve currency, there's no way that the ruble or the yuan are ever going to replace the dollar on the global stage is what central bankers would prefer to denominate their reserve assets in. Now, if you can leapfrog all fiat currencies with a technology benefit and say, wait a minute, we're gonna come along with this sovereign digital currency stuff, which is much better than fiat currency and offers a huge number of benefits that were never possible with paper money. And all of a sudden, we're the only show in town. Nobody else has got it. Well, Bitcoin and those guys kind of invented the underlying technologies that make it possible, but they're not sovereign actors. We, Russia and China, in a coalition, we're working together. We've come up with this new currency. Maybe they've backed it with gold in order to make it more compelling, and it's a digital currency that offers a whole bunch of benefits that are not possible with any fiat paper money currency. In my book, I had several chapters talking about some of the possibilities of how they might make, through technological superiority, how they might provide benefits that attract central bankers to want to use their currency instead of the dollar we need something on that level to create an upset event because until that happens the US dollar just through its its network effect it's got a monopoly there, there's no way to unseat the US dollar as the world's global reserve currency until you come up with something better so how's anybody going to come up with something better I think digital reserve currency will be in the future but That solves a set of problems that we don't really have or we don't perceive that we have quite yet. When we have runaway inflation and fiat currencies are collapsing, and somebody's got a digital currency solution that starts to solve those problems and offers other benefits and is backed by gold, all of a sudden it becomes a slam dunk. And I think that both Russia and China are smart enough to see all of this. One of the things, the ways that they beat the U.S. consistently is they know they can't win in the short term. It's the way the the Hong Kong deal happened. They said we cannot possibly fight with with, uh, the U.K. in the short term over Hong Kong. Let's give the U.K. what they want now, and we'll think in the long term. We'll make a deal that says we get to keep Hong Kong 50 years from now, after Margaret Thatcher is dead and buried and doesn't care about her public perception anymore, we'll negotiate the deal that way. They think in a much longer time frame. I think that Russia and China are both thinking not about how do we compete with the U.S. dollar right now because they're smart enough to know that's a game they cannot win. What they're doing is they're trying to get ready to be in a position to seize the opportunity when Western fiat currencies start to collapse under their own weight with runaway inflation, which I think is coming in the next decade, maybe even sooner. And I think they know that too.
2: So I'm British and the British pound used to be the world's reserve currency and it didn't stop being the world's reserve currency because we had sort of massive inflation in our country which wasn't replicated elsewhere it was really because our our share of global trade fell that's i think is the the channel by which currencies get replaced it's, you know if if china's doing a huge portion of the, the world's trade at some point they can probably say hey guys if you want to buy stuff from us you're going to have to pay in this this new currency that we've we've just come up with and the same for russia so i guess do you see the kind of direction that China and maybe Russia have headed in where they have taken a larger and larger proportion of global trade? So for Russia, you know that depends really on where the oil price is. Oil price now is pretty low, so I guess Russia really hasn't got as much economic leverage as it would have done, say, 15 years ago. China has benefited from this global deflationary trend that you've talked about because that's really what drove people to buy stuff from China, the fact that it was getting cheaper and cheaper. Again, if, if that trend reverses, will China really have the leverage necessary to actually push through this, this reserve currency?
0: Well, first of all, I see things a little bit differently than you described. I think trade is very important, but frankly, military hegemony has been the primary determinant of reserve currency status. The British Empire was the unquestioned military authority over the world for centuries. And, and that really, in my mind, is what led to the pound sterling's dominance. It was after World War II when the UK lay largely in ruin after World War II, and the U.S. had never suffered any attack on its own soil other than Hawaii. And at that point, the world's choice of the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency in 1944 was pretty darn clear. I think that What's happening is China... Well, Russia was already a superpower, or I should say the Soviet Union was a nuclear superpower. When the Soviet Union collapsed economically it was pretty clear that Russia would eventually, you know, inherit those nuclear weapons. But we went through a period of disarray where Russia was just struggling to get its act together and figure out who was in charge of the country. They've got their act together now. The Russian military is very well established. They are a nuclear superpower. It looks like they are a leading superpower in the sense of hypersonic weapons that the U.S., doesn't have, and that Russia apparently does have. China, at the same time, is also not only a leader in some of this weapons development, but they're building out their Blue Water Navy, they're building more aircraft carriers, and particularly China is reported to have invested very heavily in so-called carrier killer missiles. Missiles that are designed specifically to be able to sink a U.S. aircraft carrier, which the U.S. aircraft carriers are the mechanisms through which the United States military projects force all around the world. And it was generally assumed that it was an invincible force for the last 50 years or so. Now it's believed by most military analysts that either China or Russia, by themselves, never mind what they could accomplish if they were working together, have the ability, especially in a surprise attack, to sink U.S. aircraft carriers and disable the U.S. ability to project power and to have military hegemony. So I think that the... The military force aspect of it also sets the stage. But mostly, these things tend to change when there's a breakdown, when there's a problem. At the end of World War II, with the the U.K. very heavily damaged and the U.S. not damaged, you had a really strong argument, which is the other central bankers around the world could say, look, if we pick U.S. Treasury bonds... Or if we pick guilt, we know the US is not laying in ruin. Now, it looks like the UK is going to recover. It looks like they're going to be fine, but we don't know that yet. We know the US is a safe bet. So there was a really clear cut choice there. I think it's when you get to that next clear cut choice moment. When could that happen? If the euro and the yen and the dollar are all, who knows what they're doing relative to each other, but they're all crashing relative to gold and there's runaway inflation and purchasing power of those fiat currencies is crashing. If you've got a digital currency, particularly a gold-backed digital currency, sovereign digital currency, you've got potentially that 1944 moment to say, hey, World, look at us. We, we've got something which is clearly a better choice. And by the way, if they also have those trade benefits that you described of uh, being able to say we're producing most of the stuff that the world consumes and we get to set our terms, you're going to pay us in this new sovereign digital currency, whether you like it or not. Then they're able to really force the world's hand at that point. We haven't gotten there yet, but I think that's where we're eventually headed. If if the currency is backed by gold or any other asset, I mean, it, the money
3: supply can no longer expand, right? I mean, this is kind of like what I think is what most of those central banks and politicians are after. They, they want that. They want to be able to expand the money supply to wreck um, to changing you know, economic developments. So they're, they're kind of like cutting, um, cutting off their own leg with that. And I don't think it will last it long.
0: Well, I couldn't agree more in the sense that if you were to try to introduce a gold-backed digital currency right now and introduce it to the West, it would completely defeat the the whole ability of politicians to do what they want to do most, which is MMT, the magic money tree version of MMT, and providing helicopter money and so forth. So I agree with you. It completely undermines their ability to do what they want the most. It's not saleable right now. If you let that process play out, though, and you allow them to go to magic money tree printing with fiat currency until you get runaway inflation across all Western uh, nations to the point where it's leading to an economic crisis, then when somebody's stepping in saying, hey, guys, that whole unlimited fiat, unlimited money supply thing, Didn't work out very well. We've got a superior solution over here. And I don't think it is necessarily purely gold-backed. I think there's a way to do a partial backing, a gold redeemability without having full backing. So you still get some degree of money supply expansion capability in a a sovereign digital currency, but at least by having – a gold redeemability, even if it's not a full backing, kind of like the the post Bretton Woods, all of a sudden the, there's not really a backing of dollars uh, to gold, but at least there's a perception that gold can be converted into dollars, or rather that dollars can be converted into gold, then it provides a certain degree of confidence, which in the case of Bretton Woods, lasted for 30 years ago or so before it fell apart, right? I mean, from 1944, you didn't have backing of a certain amount of gold for every dollar. They they could expand the dollar money supply, but there was still a convertibility to gold. So until that system failed because the inflation had led to the point where the dollars were just not worth the gold that they were redeemable for, you got from 1944 to 1971 before it all fell apart. I think that there's room for a gold-redeemable digital sovereign currency to have an expandable money supply while still being redeemable for gold for a while, quite a while.
3: One more thing on gold, because I find that really fascinating, interesting. Probably all of us were long gold in some shape or form, either physical or through our trading programs or whatever the case may be, I'm certainly long gold, right? And when you look back over history with all the currency devaluation that has taken place, gold has always come out as the winner, right? I mean, hyperinflation happens, you're long gold, you're kind of like protected. So. Gold was never confiscated. It kind of like it was forced by the U.S. that you know you should be turning it in at a certain price and you know those type of things. There's all like these political mechanisms going on. But my view for the next and and this is this is just a guess, right? But say we're getting into this inflationary environment and gold will become a strongly performing asset, which is kind of like what we expect. Say for the next you know ten years or so, right? Let's be long gold. But now this new super strong digital currency, this super government-backed digital currency comes along to replace the US dollar and other paper currencies, what will the price of that gold then be? Because if that 100 years ago, when it happened the last time, you know, the Great Depression, no cryptocurrency existed. Computers didn't exist, right? So there was no alternative. Really, the only thing to go to was gold. But in 10 years from now, if we're real about it, we don't really use gold for that much, except for jewelry. Some people get their teeth done. But apart from that, it's really just this money thing, this money metal, right, which you put in a safe, and, and, and that's about it. If you don't need it for your teeth and if you don't need it for jewelry that much, maybe the value of gold will become very little once the super currency, digital currency, is with
0: us. Well, I think it, it really depends. If If you have a government-created digital currency system... It's not going to win the favor of the gold bugs in the way that something like Bitcoin does today. And I think that Bitcoin will still have a role then. The, the, the current generation of, of cryptocurrencies, which are designed to be government-proof, they're always going to have a role, at least to the extent that they're allowed to exist. Uh, and they'll appeal to people who want to be government-proof. I think that what governments are going to assert is not a government-proof digital currency, but a digital currency which is designed to do the opposite of what Bitcoin does, that's designed to be traceable, to give the government full visibility into everyone's financial affairs so they can trace every transaction, every penny of wealth that exists on the planet, the government knows who owns it, where they got it from, when they got it, and under what conditions they got it. That's what governments are going to want to get to. And I don't think that that form of digital currency, even though it will be forced on society and it will probably become the dominant money system in the world, I don't think it's going to win a whole lot of fans in the gold bug community. There will be a lot of us that are forced to use it, but I don't think that it's going to have the Bitcoin-like effect of competing with gold as a scarcity asset. Now, in
1: fear of spoiling the gold party, I will just say that I do see some people that you know that I respect as well in terms of technical analysis that are not that bullish on gold right now because they see what's happened in the last few years as a big correction from the high of whatever it was, 1900 down to a thousand and something, and then we've had this big recovery, almost back to new highs, but not quite. And we need the last leg down, the C correction down, before maybe the party can really start. But I don't want to go into more gold because we've got so many other things and we've got so little time with you, Eric, today. I want to shift gear just a little bit. I mean, we go, we, we talk about that a lot of things are likely to happen in the next decade or so, five, ten years and I can't help thinking that that's some of the things that and, – and that a lot of things in general seems to go in cycles. We we talk about that. We see it in the markets. And even though the dollar is the world recur, uh, reserve currency, it can certainly have a period of years where it gets weakened even without it losing that status. So time will tell. But what I can't help thinking of is kind of the work that we've been discussing in, in some of our weekly podcasts here is the work of Neil Howey and, and The Fourth Turning, and of course that I know you, Eric, is, is familiar with as well, and where it kind of fits into what he predicted some 30 years ago when they wrote the book, that this part of the decade, so The Fourth Turning already started in 2008, but it's actually the last part of The Fourth Turning, so the last 10 years, which is from now to about 2030, that does the most damage, and that even though the initial part of The Fourth Turning can be with a huge crisis, as we saw in 2008. The crisis that comes at the end of the fourth turning is usually much bigger, and we know historically has led to world wars, revolutions, civil wars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, how do you think about, I mean, you've touched on this already to some extent, but, I mean, is this whole reset, I mean, is this just part, and I say just in quotation – Is this just part of the normal evolution and fits completely into the demography and and, and what's coming in the fourth turning?
0: Oh, I absolutely think it is. I think everything that we're seeing in terms of civil unrest around the world, I think that the widespread popular rejection of capitalism, mostly by people who don't understand what capitalism is, they still do correctly understand that something is unjust in the world. And I think they're unfairly labeling capitalism as the problem when it's not really the problem. But the current system, which is more cronyism than capitalism, the, the, the people of the world are pissed off. They're, they're sick of it. And I think that what we'll see over the next 10 years is a major change. It, it's exactly consistent with what Neil Howe tells us to expect from a fourth turning. And the resolution of this fourth turning will be probably a new model, which is not capitalism as we've known it. It's not socialism as was practiced by the Soviet Union, say. It's some new version that I think has a lot more in facilitating wealth redistribution. I think there's a a lot of changes that are coming along those lines. Exactly how it gets resolved, I have no idea. I mean, you can't know at the beginning of the revolution how the revolution is gonna play out. But we're in a revolution scale event. This fourth turning is a big deal, just as every fourth turning is. And, um, and I think we're seeing the beginnings of the battle lines being drawn as far as what is going to be fought over. And it's about wealth inequality, it's about class inequality, it's about East versus West and the tensions between Eastern societies and Western societies. All these things are going to get resolved in the next 10 years, and then we're going to get to a point, one way or another, where it's pretty clear that we have a new system, and the, for- the first turning starts around 2030.
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. One thing I will also just wanted to ask you, this is not necessarily from kind of the work of of the fourth turning, but another guy that I've certainly uh, followed from, from time to time, I would say that I'm sure you're also familiar with, which is uh, Martin Armstrong. He also talks about cycles. He has his own business cycle and or economic cycle and all sorts of cycles. But one of the things that he's talked about and written about uh, extensively for many years is that we at some point is going to see this shift from public to private. And part of the maybe the resolution or, or the trigger of all of this is the fact that we will lose faith in politicians, we'll lose faith in, in these institutions like the Federal Reserve, the ECB, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and against all maybe normal uh, intuition where we feel that we're going to be safe by buying government bonds, government bonds is actually the one thing that is going to take you know, most of the, the damage, uh, so to speak, uh, which will probably cripple the pension fund system and then that's going to need another, uh, another bailout. But, but actually it may lead, I don't know if I believe in this yet, but, but it actually counterintuitively may lead to people seeking safety in equities, how, how how what do you what do you think about that? And also because I do want to spend the last few minutes we have with you to talk a little bit about um, kind of the markets and where we may see some of these things play out.
0: Well, Martin Armstrong's argument, which he's made for several years now, has been that as crazy as it seems, the equity market, the stock market, becomes the safety trade, where where you know there's nothing else better. I think. Real estate has the potential to make a comeback, too. We've been through a, a pretty big real estate cycle. I think that hard assets ought to benefit better, even though in some ways, fractional ownership of a corporation is a hard asset. A, a corporation you know, is a real thing that makes money. Uh, but still, it's a financial asset. It's a stock certificate that's part of a system, and if that system falls apart, the benefit of owning that stock certificate is dubious whereas if you've got farmland that is being used to produce food that everyone's well-being is dependent on you know that's an asset that plays a more strategic role so i think that as we get more overcrowding of the planet with population expansion things like farmland that are essential things like water businesses that provide, whether it's technology companies that are producing reverse osmosis desalination equipment, or if it is actual resources, reservoirs and so forth that are securitized some way, natural resources that are essential to the well-being of the planet, farmland, agriculture, uh, that are needed in order to produce food for everyone to eat. Those are things that are absolutely essential parts of the economy no matter what happens. On the other hand, things like the the phenomenon of tech stocks like Apple and Google being half of the the value of the stock market, can that really last forever? I don't think so. So uh, I think it's a question of which parts of the equity market you're talking about. I do think that we've been through a major cycle for the last 50 years approximately of financialization of the economy. I think it's gone too far and the pendulum has to swing the other way. Well, how do you definancialize a financialized economy? Well, we never had a financialized economy like this before, so I think it's it's an open question as to what it means to go too far and to see an unwind of the financialization that's occurred since the late 70s. I think it's gone about as far as it can go now in terms of financial assets really being everything. And, you know, CDO squareds, uh, these esoteric, bizarre contraptions of holding instruments that hold obligations that are – levels of derivative product away from the actual mortgage loan, which is just a loan on a real property that exists somewhere. You know, we're, we're so far down this path of financialization and derivatives. We've got to some point get back to hard assets and real stuff matters again. How does that play out? I'm not sure. Does the stock market win? Does real estate win? Do other, you know, is are gold and other commodities the winners? I'm not sure.
2: Mm. I think also that Hard assets like property are probably also a better inflation hedge than equities. Referring, to returns your earlier argument, uh, whereas equities only really are a good inflation hedge if, if firms have pricing power. I just want to pick up on your point about sort of complexity and financialization. I used to work in a, for an investment bank. One of the things we used to do was was hedge and trade, you know, structured products that were obviously risk with a client. The clients were buying all these, these kind of crazy things. Isn't this sort of increased complexity of markets just a kind of natural human phenomenon? Do, do, is it really something that, that, that can be reversed, even if perhaps, and I kind of agree with you, it should be reversed?
0: Well, I think there is a natural human phenomenon, which is to the extent that there is spare capacity in the economy. In other words, 300 years ago, everybody worked on farms because the only way to produce enough food for everybody to eat was for all of the people on the planet to work on farms. Now we've gotten to the level of societal complexity where only a very small handful of people need to work on farms and the rest of us can do other things. So as you have all of this spare cash flow, if you will, what happens is financialization and also technology are organized to capitalize on it. So you'd create these financialized products to basically say, I want, <laughs> you know, the investment bankers that are doing this stuff want a bigger slice of the pie than the farmers get. And by the way, the uh, the other side of that is the technology guys who can figure out how to design the next iPad or or whatever, which fascinates people and gives them social media or something. Their basic human needs of water and food and shelter were already met. They've got spare financial capacity. Technology and financialization are the two big trends that absorb that spare capacity of extra money that exists in the economy. The question is, do you always have that spare capacity of extra money for technology and bankers to absorb? And as soon as you don't have that spare capacity, that, that spare money, I think that technology and financialization suffer immensely because people are forced back to what's actually important, which is food to eat, shelter to live in. So real estate does well, real property does well that actually houses people. But financialization and the latest Silicon Valley upstart that's doing some different version of social media instead of Snapchat with pictures. Now it's videos. Now it's, you know, whatever comes next after videos, it's 3D holograms on the next social media channel. All that stuff can go away if people are hungry and need to eat. We'll forget about all that stuff. We haven't had that problem yet, but I think that as we get to runaway inflation and other economic problems and a failure of fiat currency systems, we probably are going to have some degree of depression where we don't have unlimited amounts of money to feed Silicon Valley and investment bankers with.
3: Maybe before we close off, uh, let's get a bit more micro in in our macro discussion. We're living in a pandemic, that's a fact, but the V-shaped recovery is also a fact, at least as far as the stock market is concerned, right? And you know, case in point today, when I look at the S&P 500, it was down more than 2% and it completely did a complete U-turn. We're now trading up twenty basis points. So no matter what happens in the world, you know what new type of virus or second wave rumors seem to come up, it doesn't seem to doesn't seem to bother the stock market the slightest. Where do you think are we with equities in, in at the current moment?
0: Well, I think that the V-shaped recovery is in financial markets. It's not in the real economy. We have still got people that are stuck at home. We've got. A huge number of businesses that are put out of business, something like half of the restaurants in the United States are expected to never reopen again under their current ownership. Some of those properties will be, you know, become restaurants that somebody else starts someday. Um, there there is massive economic damage. And the question you have to ask yourself is, well, okay, if there's not a v-shaped recovery of the economy, what the heck is going on in financial markets? And I think the answer is pretty clear. Financial markets have learned to anticipate central bank accommodation and to price assets for the inflation that will occur as a result of that accommodation. And and, and when I say inflation, I mean asset price inflation. So I think that what's going on is the – trillions of dollars of both monetary policy accommodation and fiscal policy accommodation that have already been announced in the wake of the coronavirus crisis are driving a V-shaped recovery of assets, which is completely disconnected from the real economy. Now, I would argue that The stock market for the last decade has been largely disconnected from the real economy. So I don't see why stocks can't continue to go much higher, back to new all-time highs, perhaps even accelerating their climb. Beyond just new all-time highs, maybe we're looking at 4000 on the S&P before Christmas. It's not because we recovered from the coronavirus and everything is fine. It's because we're conjuring trillions of dollars out of thin air, which will eventually serve to debase the purchasing value of all dollars and lead to probably an inflationary depression at some point. But these things have long lag times. So for now, what you're seeing is big asset price inflation.
1: And of course, there is another V that we're seeing right now coming back to make a good compact, and that is volatility. And uh, that's probably also something that is here to stay. I want to put in a kind of a final question to summarize a little bit of the things we've talked about today uh, as we want to respect your time. And that is really kind of putting all of this together, Eric. You, I mean, you're an investor yourself, besides being a great podcast host. How should people invest in today's world?
0: I think you absolutely have to love precious metals in the long term with a really big caveat that, as you said, there is a good technical argument that we're way overdue for a major major technical correction, maybe even down to a new cycle low below a thousand. So you can't afford to be using a whole lot of leverage here and really taking a levered position in precious metals because that potentially is a recipe for self-destruction. Short of that, I think you definitely want to be overweight precious metals. You want to be starting to think about other inflation hedges like real estate. And I think that you've got to expect that the rules of the game are going to be changed. We're moving from a political backdrop, which was generally supportive, at least in the United States, of uh you know everybody is entitled to keep the the money that they made in in their investments and in their businesses and so forth we're moving to a political environment where More and more people want to see the government's role is redistribution of wealth. So I think you've got to assume that your tax burden is going to be higher if you're fortunate enough to be investing in the first place. you got more money than most of the people around you in society. I think the rules are going to change, and you should start to uh, just accept, whether you agree with it or not, that like it or not, the rules are going to change to where some of your money is going to be given to the people around you because they need it more than you do. Some people, I'm sure listeners will will think that's long overdue. Others will think it's a, a great travesty of justice. My point is don't spend too much time worrying about how you feel about it because you can't change it. That's just the trend that society is on, whether we like it or not. I think that productive real assets and productive businesses, there's an argument for private equity, I think, for smaller companies as we get out of this financialization trend. I'm not sure what the time horizon is for for financialization winding down. It may have a ways to go before it peaks. But uh, at some point, I think that private equity as opposed to public equity investments is going to make more sense. And I think mostly we need to be ready for difficult times ahead. You know, we are in a fourth turning. This is the the same season of history that World War II happened in. It's the same season of history that the Great Depression happened in. It's the same season of history that the Civil War happened in. We're headed for some difficult times in the 2020s, and I think that there's lots of reasons to be just uber-duber bullish what starts in the early 2030s. I think it's going to be amazing. Between now and then, put your seatbelt on. There could be some rough turbulence ahead.
1: Yeah. On that note, Eric, we want to say uh, thanks ever so much for spending some time with us. We really appreciate it, as I'm sure all of our listeners do. And by the way, make sure you go and check out Eric's own awesome podcast, Macro Voices. I'm sure most of you know that already. From Rob Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you with the next episode of our Global Macro mini series. In the meantime,
0: be well. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released.